This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Are you listening to this episode of Unspooled on the go? Do you want to be listening to it on the go, but feel even lighter and freer and not like somebody's pinging you on your smartphone being like, hey, pay attention to me in this email. I've got a work question for you because you can do that right now with Palm. Palm is back. It is available on Verizon. And what it is, is it's a small little companion to your phone that syncs with your smartphone and it lets you turn on whatever apps you want and whatever apps you don't want so that all your info is connected. That means you can go on like a run and just only have a podcast and get a couple text messages if that's all you want. You can have your Instagram up only if that's what you want. Just take some pictures. You can do anything. It allows you to leave your smartphone behind so that you can focus on the moment. And maybe this podcast if you're into that. So go to palm.com to learn more or go run to your nearest Verizon store. You can check out Palm for yourself. Amy, I want to recommend to you uh, an amazing show. Comedian Chris Gethard, the host of Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People Podcast, has a new component to the show called Beautiful Follow-Ups, available on Stitcher Premium. Uh, Beautiful Anonymous is a podcast where each week he opens the phone line to one anonymous caller. He talks to them for one hour and is never allowed to hang up. Sometimes it's funny, oftentimes it's very dark. Uh, And now you can hear new episodes where Chris has follow-up conversations with some of the most beloved controversial and mind-blowing callers from past episodes plus you get the show's full archive completely ad-free listen to beautiful follow-ups only on stitcher premium go to stitcherpremium.com stories use the promo code unspooled for a free month of stitcher premium definitely do it if you're a podcast fan that is stitcherpremium.com stories promo code unspooled for a free month of stitcher premium they have updated this app it is amazing and definitely check out chris gethard's show beautiful anonymous and beautiful stories the follow-up podcast it's 1946, and a suicidal man and a ghost walk into a bar. That's not a joke. That's actually a scene in It's a Wonderful Life. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. 
This is a show where we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100's Greatest Films of All Time, 2007 edition, to see if they're really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the films that we watch now. First of all, I just want to give a big shout-out to uh, Radio New Zealand, the podcast hour, for doing a little segment on this show. Amy, it's the holiday season. It is the holiday season. You're and twinkling right now. You've I, got I lights really... everywhere. Your nose is green. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, though. I know we're talking about a big holiday movie this episode coming up. What is your favorite, your go-to holiday movie? Oh, man, you're going to call me out like that? Because mine's embarrassing. No, please. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. I really want to know now. Can I guess it? Is it Love Actually? No. Oh, okay. God, no. All right. Well, no, that's, that would not. be embarrassing. <laughs> it is um, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh wow! That's ever... like a cl- that's that's a movie that people recommend for how did this get made all the time. Oh really? Yes. My dad was like a big bad movie fan. My dad was okay. like an MS uh, Mr. Science Theater person, okay. and so yeah, like he broke it out. He was obsessed with Pia Zadora and okay. Kim Cattrall before she was on Sex and the City. Wait, she's in that Kim Cattrall? No, oh, right, it was just sort right. of part of the landscape of my okay. father's film interests. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we would watch Santa Claus Conquers the Martians every holiday. Did it, he like her as Valeris in Star Trek VI: <laughs> The Undiscovered Country? He liked her in anything that was at USA up all night, um, and also the California. Reasons Christmas special, which I think it's wow. short shrift compared to the other Rudolphs and et cetera's, et cetera's. Wow. All right. These are really good choices. I was going to go very simply and say that Scrooged is one of yes. my favorite movies. Bill Murray. The movie is actually written by Michael O'Donohue, who's known as one of the like most, uh, I don't know, avant-garde SNL writers. He's actually the guy in the sketch with John Belushi in the first SNL sketch ever, where it was like, Feed your fingertips to the wolves. So the movie is like, I don't know if you've never seen it. It's dark and it's funny and it's one of my favorite, favorite films. It is probably my Christmas Carol. I think my second one is maybe the Mickey Mouse one. Ooh, I've watched many a Mickey Mouse Christmas Carols. There's a couple of them. I like the Muppets Christmas Carol too. Also good. Also good. But I do always just assume that um, Goofy is Jacob Marley. Like they're just so tied in my head. Like whatever I think of Marley, that is the image in my head before all else. I love it. I will say that as an adult now watching Christmas specials with my children, uh, there's a lot of them on Netflix and a lot of them revolving around Mickey. There are some adult themes. Like we're watching uh, um, a Mickey Christmas Carol. It's all about Goofy's son bringing home his girlfriend and being embarrassed in front of Goofy. And I'm like, who is this appealing to? Like, what? This is not, this is like an adult story. Like, what kid is watching? <laughs> what kid is watching like a Mickey Christmas special and being like, I relate to this young man who's bringing home his girlfriend for the first time. It's a very bizarre, oddly adult thing, but it's narrated by Kelsey Grammer, and uh, I love it because it makes me think of the time Kelsey Grammer was on stage talking about Walt Disney and then fell off the stage. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> no. Uh, Google it now. It, that's my holiday gift to all you <laughs> listeners out there. Uh, he's walking across the stage <laughs> and just falls off it. And it's, oh, God. Oh, God. And look, it's it's like Grape Stomp meets Frasier. Uh, Did you know that I used to be a theater critic? No. Yeah, I was a theater critic for like my first huge chunk of time out here in L.A. And A Christmas Carol is why I quit on Impulse. <laughs> <laughs> I would quit, too, because of that. Yeah, because when you're a theater critic, and I loved it. It was like the best education yeah. for being a film critic. Yeah. Um, Every Christmas, I had to review A Christmas Carol at least two or three times, like different productions. I saw it where it was like, A Christmas Carol transplanted to a hotel kitchen, you know? You see these like mashups where everybody tries to find a new interesting spin on A Christmas Carol. And there was finally one, 
I had been reviewing so many Christmas carols and it was like in Irvine, which can be a two hour drive oh. on a Friday. And it turned into like a two and a half hour drive because everybody was shopping at the malls. And I just pulled over hour two and I told my boss that I loved him and I was quitting. <laughs> I love that. And by the way, like that's your, that is that your Scrooge moment or is that your, like your morning after moment? I don't know. Like, cause you kind of changed your whole career path. Maybe that's your morning after your Christmas carol. It did sort of feel like opening up the windows and being like, I'm free. I'm happy. <laughs> young boy, young boy, what day is today? Christmas. Uh, so, all right, that is awesome. And so I guess you're not going to come see my uh, Love Actually Live production that I'm doing here in LA. No big deal. I, I, no big deal. That is actually a thing? That is the thing. I saw a billboard for it on the way to record today. Who are you in it? Uh, I'm all the kids. What? The one, a one person show where I do Love Actually Live. You gotta see it. It's really good. <laughs> I think if I saw it, it would become my favorite Christmas memory of all time. <laughs> uh, but since I haven't seen it yet, let's talk to our listeners who called with their favorite Christmas memory of It's a Wonderful Life. This is Armando Gonzalez from McAllen, Texas. Uh, I probably watched it before I even knew what A Christmas Carol was. So that was like my first Christmas movie. My boyfriend grew up here in Manhattan, um, Jewish, and had never seen any Christmas movies at all. But it was actually quite great for him to be able to sit with my dad and, and watch the movie. And him being like, oh, that's where all these references come from. <laughs> I love this movie. I'm Jewish. I'm a rabbi. And I watch this uh, every year on both Thanksgiving and uh, close to Christmas. My memory of It's a Wonderful Life was watching it for the first time with my grandfather um, because he actually was Jimmy Stewart's bombardier trainer at Gowan Airfield in uh, Boise, Idaho. They two of them became friends. Hey, my experience with It's a Wonderful Life was watching it as a kid uh, with my family and thinking that George Bailey was kind of a sucker. And then as I got older, the more... I related to George Bailey on like a personal level is having plans and ideas and things just not happen, not happen, not happen, uh, and almost seeming to fail and be bitter about it until finding solace in the things that I do have, which for me, like George, is my wife and kids and my friends and family. Well, thank you guys for calling in. The little Grinch part of my heart is growing a tiny bit bigger. <laughs> well, you're a Grinch. <laughs> I'm a Grinch. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a Grinch. But maybe I will be less of a Grinch by the end of this week's episode. So it's 1946. The average cost of a new house is about $5,000. The bikini debuted in Paris in July. The first Cannes Film Festival takes place in Cannes. People are listening to Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Duke Ellington, and the Andrews Sisters. Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech in Missouri uh, marked the beginning of the Cold War between the West and the USSR. And Thomas the Tank Engine first appeared in the second book of the Railway series. Uh, that's for all the parents out there who probably know a lot more about Thomas the Tank than they ever thought possible, like me, now that I have a child. But it's also the year that It's a Wonderful Life comes out in the theater. A classic film, Amy, and who starred in It's a Wonderful Life? Well, A Wonderful Life is directed by our friend Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. And it stars his favorite star, Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey. You got Donna Reed making her major, major debut as Mary Hatch Bailey. You got Henry Travers as Clarence Oddbody. You got Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Henry F. Potter. You have Thomas Mitchell as Uncle Billy Bailey. You got Beulah Bondi, James Stewart's perennial mom as Ma Bailey. 
And you have a woman I really adore, Gloria Graham, as Violet Bick, the town floozy, who I feel like is a little unjustly maligned. For people out there who don't know, what is It's a Wonderful Life about? Well, It's a Wonderful Life is about a man named George Bailey who had dreams for his life that he does not get to accomplish. He wants to travel. He wants to see the world. He basically just wants to get the hell out of Seneca Falls as soon as possible. Marries, has four children, runs the local loan savings bank thing to, like, help people find cheap housing. It is essentially miserable. And on one night decides he wants to commit suicide because he thinks he's going to go to jail. And an angel named Clarence comes down to convince him that his life has meaning, even though he feels like he's failed at everything he wanted. Well, classic film, right? We could all agree. Amy, I'm sure you love this movie, right? It's great. I have never seen this film until what? just the other day. What did you do for Christmas? Is it get where you like locked in a cage? I know. I watched Scrooged and Home Alone <laughs> and The Muppets Christmas Carol. Like I, I elf, you know, I have never seen this film. I could tell you roughly what it was about. I kept on talking to certain friends and I was like, have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? People are like, no, I never saw it. Never saw it. Wow. And I was surprised because it, it's one of those films, and I don't even like to admit it out loud that I never had seen this film because it feels like, how could you How could you not have seen it? It's like the way people react when you tell them, I don't, I have never seen Star Wars. Like, what? How dare you? Are you an American at all? Are we in a cultural fugue state where we just decided that A Wonderful Life was a movie that everybody watched, but nobody actually watched it? I don't know. I think it's on in the background a lot. That's certainly how I have experienced it in the past. And it seemed, honestly, to me, like a boring film. But I have to say, I am loving Frank Capra. Like, I think Frank Capra, and I know it's so stupid to say, is an amazing director. Like, his films are dark, they're cynical, they're interesting, they feel relevant to today. And I want to talk to you about this idea, before we get into the movie, about how maybe Frank Capra has gotten beaten up by our current society. Because people are always describing things as Capra-esque, and I think that like is another adjective for, like, it's saccharine. But he's not saccharine. Like, Capra-esque, I want there to be more Capra-esque films. This is not like... Uh, a feel-good movie. I mean, it is at the end, but it it's a much more kind of complicated film. Yeah, this movie is not saccharine. This yeah. movie is full of speeches about capitalism being like the death knell of small-town living, yeah. which I would 100% agree with. I mean, this movie is bitter and funny. You fall in love with George Bailey, and then he becomes an abusive husband, screaming at his kids, screaming at his wife. This movie is not just like, here's a marshmallow. It's more like, hi, I'm like a cinnamon candy cane. The main premise of the film is about a person who wants to leave their small town. And when he can't, he wants to die. And that's such a relatable concept. Like, I want to get out. I want to explore the world. And he gets so close. And every time he gets... Almost like the foot out the door, it, they just pull him right back in. and Just when you think I'm out of Bedford Falls. <laughs> <laughs> and every time they do it, they pull him back in, he goes down a peg. And you watch this man go from a youthful, happy lad to a bitter man. And I love that. Like, that, like that's the trajectory of this film is how someone becomes that curmudgeon. You know, when his brother goes off to war and he has to stay there and his brother's getting all the accolades and he he just has to kind of keep a stiff upper lip. And I was heartbroken by George Bailey. It, it, it's, it's a heart-wrenching uh, character. 
It really is. You watch this man who was capable of wanting to do so much. And he's almost a little cocky about it. His dad's like, take over my business. And he's like, in a fucking million years, God, no, never. <laughs> I will never have your life. And now I have your life. I mean, that's that's tragic. You watch a guy who, like, tells Donna Reed, no way I'm ever going to be boring and get into plastics. And then his friend becomes a bazillionaire based on his idea. And he just has to sit with it. And this is a character that I feel like is just at his wits end. He tries. He tries so hard. And and yes, we see that little flash of him being mean at the end. But it's like he doesn't go full Scrooge. He kind of just he kind of decides to kill himself before he goes full Scrooge. Yeah, but it is like if you took a Christmas Carol and just divided Scrooge into two halves. Right. You're like, here's your flashback about what your life was like, and then here's just full-on evil in the form of Mr. Potter, which is great because Lionel Barrymore was actually famous at the time for being Scrooge on the radio. Like, every year they would do a live radio production of A Christmas Carol, and every year Lionel Barrymore was like, I'm Scrooge, and every year he did great. And I actually pulled a clip of it from a year that Orson Welles was the narrator. What right have you to be merry? What, what reason have you? You're bored enough. Well, what right have you to be dismal about Christmas, Uncle? You're rich enough. Ah, now, Uncle, don't be cross. Well, what else can I be when I live in such a world of fools? What's Christmas to you but a time for paying bills without money? Merry Christmas. A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips would be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Yeah, he could basically do Scrooge in his sleep. And I pulled that clip from 1939 because that was the year that Philip Van Doren Stern began writing his story, began writing the book that It's a Wonderful Life became. You know, it was, well, I mean, before it became a book, it was a Christmas card. Did you know that? It was a Christmas pamphlet. Oh, a pamphlet. Like, right. like, like the ones you get from your annoying friends are like, oh my God, let me tell you about every spelling test. I do like those just because they're so rare. Like I like to get into the <laughs> nitty gritty of it. Um, but yeah, it was a 21-page pamphlet that he sent out to his friends and, and family uh, because he couldn't get the book published. And it kind of landed in the lap of some RKO executive who was like, we got to do this. Let's make this into a movie. It eventually becomes a book. I thought it was interesting that, you know, the author of this story is kind of a George Bailey type of character. Couldn't catch a break in the publishing biz and then <laughs> sends it out there and then gets his big break. That's funny because I was thinking about how it reminds me of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's basically like, y'all like Twilight. I'm going to do my own fanfic version of it. And it works. <laughs> And the story kind of continues to evolve as it becomes a screenplay. First of all, Capra pisses off the original people who adapt the uh, the book into a screenplay. Uh, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. He basically makes them so angry. At one point, he's like, where's the script? Is it done yet? And they're like, yeah, it's done. And they just like leave the project. They're still credited as writers on the project, but they just, they get out. And they're and a married couple, by the way, which makes me think maybe that's part of why this marriage is so interesting in the film. Well, oh, so that good. is interesting. Yeah, I, I, I love the Donna Reed character in this film. I mean, and I love their relationship too. It feels real and and this one woman that he's kind of interested in from very early on and this other woman and kind of the push pull of both of them and but there's and also a lot of people who worked on the film secretly so many people Dorothy Parker Dalton Trumbo Clifford Odets they all jumped in here and, and many of them did very different things I mean like Dalton Trumbo's version of the script like uh George Bailey was kind of a rich businessman and you know but then I also feel like Dorothy Parker is known for kind of this, 
you know, very pointed, I don't know if cynical is the right word, but she had this very like kind of pointed way of looking at the world. And I think that that rings true in this film. It, there, There is uh, kind of a a slam on small town life. Yeah, and I have no idea if Dorothy Parker wrote any of the dialogue for Mary. Mm-hmm. But man, young Mary is kind of a snobby biatch, and I love her for that. And I just want to pretend in my fanfic mind that that is Dorothy Parker. Like, here, let's listen to this scene when George Bailey, young George Bailey, shows up at the drugstore where he's working. Young Donna Reed's character, young Mary, is there, as well as young Violet Bick. And you're going to hear um, Mary just really give the stink eye, stick her tongue out of Violet. It's like, damn, Mary, okay. Thank you. Shoelaces? Please, Georgie. I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? First, I just love the innocence of Violet's voice. Like, what is wrong with that? One of the things that I'm really impressed with in watching Capra films is the way that he captures childhood and family life. These kids don't feel like your typical kids that you see in film. Uh, You know, we go back to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that dinner table scene. So funny and so kind of electric and alive. We see a lot of family stuff throughout this. But there's a a good period of the movie in the beginning where we're spending with kids. And they don't feel too cutesy. They feel like they have opinions. and and, And that doesn't feel like inorganic what she's saying. They're not too smart either. I, I don't know. I think he captures children and family in a really real way. Yeah. I mean, there's a world in which like young George Bailey is insufferable where he's like, I'm just a good little boy who wants to get out of town. Yeah. And this George Bailey, I mean, in this exact drugstore scene even says some stuff that I find kind of crazy and hilarious. And this, by the way, is when he's making Mary... An ice cream sundae. She said no coconut. He's putting on a ton of coconut. Uh, she whispers into his deaf ear. George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. I'm going out exploring someday. You watch. And I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. Wait and see. <laughs> he wants harems. I love that line. And I mean, and by the way, the other thing that's kind of going on while this cute scene is happening in the front of the drugstore is in the back of the drugstore. Your druggist, your chemist, your pharmacist is um, drunk because his son has just died from influenza. And about a beat later, he is beating George Bailey because there was a an issue with a delivery. And there's a scene where George Bailey's ear is bleeding in that scene. Did you know that that was actually real blood? Whoa. That he hit him that hard that his ear bled? I mean, oh. this this movie is full of amazing, weird gaffes. We'll get into a couple of the ones that I thought were really fun. I watched it on Amazon Prime, and the trivia thing will pop up occasionally. And it was like pop-up video, but you're like, whoa, wait, this and that? Okay, wait, this is maybe a moment to say that when I watched this movie, I uh, hit play on a version not knowing it was the colorized version. Me too! You too? I did, yes! You, okay, because, like, I was going to change it, and then I thought, you know, in the spirit of Schindler's List, uh-huh. I want to see what it is like to watch a black and white movie with, like, random color additions. Right. You know, because it didn't start out feeling that much in color, and then it kind of grew on me to where five minutes, and I was like, this is the colorized version. I thought it was just a little random. Oh, bits. I reacted so negatively to it. I was like, oh, get this out of here. <laughs> but I will say, when you watch it in color... His bleeding ear is, like, bright red. I don't think I noticed how gory it was (laughs) until it was in color. And also, the movie being in color makes you just notice all sorts of random things, like 
what they're eating when they sit down at their oh, dinner yeah. table and he's yelling at his dad. I was like, that looks like cat food and that is very bright spinach. And halfway through the meal, the maid comes in with the salads, which I'd never noticed because I didn't really notice they were salads yeah. before. Because in black and white, all food kind of looks the same. Absolutely. If you don't get a good look at it. But she comes in with these like horribly tinted lime green salads with bright pink slices of tomato on them. And I was just like, A, you're eating salad halfway through the meal, which is interesting. And B, just what is happening with that salad? Like I couldn't get my mind off of it. Well, this is kind of like the advent of colorization. So I feel like the film was being experimented on a little bit too. Like they, this company came to, I mean, we'll get into a little bit later about how the rights of this film got a little loose uh, from people until I think 1994, but people could kind of take and do whatever they wanted with this film for quite some time. Um, and so they experimented I, on it. So I feel like that was the first time that they were like, let's do it. Color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't say I recommend watching it in color. I feel like I kept watching it in color just out of pure stubbornness. And cause I have seen this You've before. Seen so I was much, like, yeah. you know what? Let's do it. Let's commit. Let's do this in color. Um, which I worry made me like appreciate the cinematography a little bit less. <laughs> But it's my God, good. when it's in color, it's crazy. When he runs under the bridge, for some reason, it looks almost black and white, except like the caution signs are glowing. Oh, I have to now go back and watch this in color just to see like the psychedelic effect of it. You mentioned Schindler's List, and we record these episodes pretty close together, our Schindler's and our It's a Wonderful Life. And I realized in watching It's a Wonderful Life, oh, wow, these two movies take place at the same time. Watching this so close to Schindler's List, I was thinking like, Oh, there's like a version of Schindler's List that you would make after the war where he like goes to Buenos Aires and like fails at everything he does. And that would be like the Schindler's List, It's a Wonderful Life, where he just can't cut a break. That is amazing. So you're... <laughs> I mean, because Schindler was a good dude, man. There's so a, like, yeah, okay. I, I, except well, for these, this period of his life. So. Well, he wasn't a good businessman. We definitely know that. Um, and the idea that each man's life touches a lot of lives. Schindler gets that. Bailey gets that. These movies are really similar. <laughs> they really are. You know, going back to Capra and talking about someone who's touched so many people's lives, I know we already talked about it a little bit, but like, you know, Frank Capra is, I think, very closely associated with Americana. And this film, and especially, is, you know, this is our classic American film. And it was surprising to me that it didn't make money when it came out. It was kind of a flop because it opened up against, uh, is it the year of our lives? Best years of our life. Open up against the best years of our lives. Which, which we're going to get to. Which I know, which I don't even know about. Um, and it was something that was totally self-financed by Capra. Like this is his independent film. It kind of bit him in the ass because he lost money on it. But I was kind of amazed that this is the story that he was like, I am going to sink all this money into. Clearly it worked, but it's amazing that he knew like this is, is the right story. It wasn't received at exactly the right time. I think the 70s is when this movie really exploded into the zeitgeist and we understand it as now being the classic that it is. You know, I think a lot of times people take big swings and it doesn't always work. It's like, it's my passion project. And it's like, oh, it's not as good as the other movies that you made. This is a passion project that it's a movie that probably the most people have seen on this list next to The Wizard of Oz. I would, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that. I guess we'll find out yeah. if, if there's a lot of people who are watching it for the first time. But yeah, I mean, this is a movie where I think the onset vibe was not that great mm -hmm. because Jimmy Stewart had just gotten back from the war. Capra had gotten back from the war. 
they were trying to make a film that would solidify that they were back. You know, right. like we're here and they have all this money on the line. You're right. Because they had just founded, a Capra had just founded Liberty, Liberty Films, his like independent production agency, which it did not go well. And from what I, everything I've heard, like Donna Reed has kind of talked about how she thought they just hated her because everyone was so awkward on set, but it was really just because they were stressed out. And also because they're shooting a Christmas movie with like a lot of heavy coats when it was like 90 degrees outside. It was shot during a heat wave on this insanely expensive set. It was like a $3 million set where they recreated all of, well, not recreated, they created Bedford Falls, you know, this, uh, you know, stretch of like 70 shops and stores. And he even created this new type of snow with his special effects uh, supervisor, Russell Sherman. Uh, Basically in the past, they painted cornflakes to look like snow, but it would cause a lot of sound issues because when the actors would walk, they'd hear all the crunching. And that sounds really hard. Can I just say that? Oh, yeah. Painting they'd be hit cornflakes? Terrifying. Uh, so they created this thing called fomite. It's the stuff that you would find in fire extinguishers with sugar and water to create this like less noisy <laughs> option. Can I just say yeah. that fomite is so perfect for a movie that's about FOMO? I didn't think about this movie as a FOMO film. But that, I think, is why this movie lasts, because we all have it. We long to see what else is out there for us and and envision ourselves in different ways. And in that respect, going back to what we first started talking about, like, that's why I think this is a more interesting Christmas movie than A Christmas Carol, because I don't think we see ourselves as Ebenezer Scrooge. I think we see ourselves as... As George Bailey, like, if I could only catch a break, I want to catch a break. I, oh, I did it and I'm trying my best, but God, I want, just get me, we feel that. And, and, you know, to different levels, but I think it's a much more relatable story. Well, yeah, I mean, the counterpoint of that is that there is a person in this movie who does not want to leave that town. It's Donna Reed, it's Mary. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it this time with the lens of, what if Mary is like a powerful witch? Because when you look at her actions, Mary is like whispering in his ear when she's a kid, like, right. I'm going to love you till the day I die. He doesn't even hear that. I love this, where you're going with this. Right? And then later on, they like reconnect at this party where they're dancing. They're like jitterbugging, right. charlestoning, and they fall into the pool. By the way, her uh, boyfriend in that scene, her like the, the guy who's like yeah. hitting on her and then like opens up the pool. Yes. Is Alfalfa. Yes. <laughs> from... The Arguing Films, who did you know that has, he has a really tragic end? No. So this is what happens to Alfalfa. Like, they put Alfalfa in this movie because he couldn't get his adult career going. They were giving him some shots. Like, come come on, man. Let's see if you can do this. It doesn't work. So he becomes- And he's perfectly fine in the film. It's not like he's a bad actor in this movie. Yeah. He's perfectly fine. But it doesn't work. So he becomes a dog trainer. Um, Amy, I'm getting nervous already. Yeah. Go ahead. He gets into a dispute over a dog that ran away. It wasn't his dog, but he wound up paying, like, the fee to get the lost dog back. And then when he went to ask the man whose dog it was if he could reimburse him for the fee for finding the dog, the guy shot him in the crotch and he died. Oh, jeez. That went in so many different directions I didn't expect. Oh, God. Sorry. Okay, so back to Mary as a witch. Uh, You know what? But by the way, while we are talking about Alfalfa, too, I want to just put one little note in here. I talked about famous film gaffes. Alfalfa is responsible for one of them. So there's that scene where Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart are dancing and Alfalfa opens up the floor and there's a pool underneath uh, the floor. And that's actually in Beverly Hills High School here in Los Angeles. It's so unbelievable that they keep on dancing. Like everyone's like, ah, ah. And that's like, it's not like they were looking into each other's eyes. They were just like, they, they have no reaction to it. I give George Bailey a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt because maybe he couldn't hear on the right-hand side of his head. But uh, but 
Like they really, <laughs> they really don't take social cues. Everyone has stopped dancing but them. Uh, but maybe that's that how- line like, we must be good. Yeah. Like he notices something is up and he's like, we're just awesome at this. But he doesn't look, he doesn't like really, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great sequence. He's blinded by first love. When he falls in the water, Jimmy Stewart's toupee falls off. He has a toupee. Yes. I didn't <gasps> know that. And when you watch it now, um, I, we're not going to play you a clip because you can't see it. You will clearly see a bald Jimmy Stewart. I didn't know that he wore a toupee, and uh, and it was really interesting to see. You, it, it's as clear as the day, and I'm sure even clearer in color. But so, anyways, back to yes. Mary as a witch. witch. Because then what happens is they walk home. It's kind of a sexy scene. I she's wearing the robe. Love that scene. That was a beautifully written scene. Ah, oh, I love that. I love it, and it's like kind of erotic. I think for its day that she's very clearly naked. Yes. Under that robe. Yes. You know, I mean, this is a height of code. Yeah. Very clearly naked under that robe, walking around. And then he gets the robe off of her, which you could, all right, whatever. But um, I was thinking going to Rocky territory there a little bit when he won't give her her robe back. She's like, give it back. He's like, no. He and Mary throw rocks into this window. They cast their spells. She won't say hers out loud, but it is clearly ruin George Bailey's life, but make him marry me and stay with me forever and move into that house. Which? Because, I mean, Mary's goth as fuck. Can we just talk about this? I, I'm, I'm Amy. I am on this train. Take me to wherever you want to lead me here. Okay. Because I love Mary. This okay. is all coming out of a lot of deep love for Mary. But Mary okay. gets exactly what she wants. Bailey gets nothing. And she's like, you're going to stay in this town and you're going to love me forever. And he does. And by the way, at the end, she does get the money. Where does she get that money from? Spells. <laughs> exactly. And then think about what happens when they get married. They get married and it's like... A rainy wedding day, which is very Alanis. Thank you, Alanis. But it's also like, hey, you can't make the perfect wedding day, even if, even despite everything. Like, right. it's thunderstorming. He can't go on the honeymoon because of this run on the bank. And so she has their honeymoon night in a house covered in cobwebs. Wow, Amy, you're they blowing my mind They lose their virginities to each other in a haunted goth house, right? Yes, yes, I'm with you, yes. Everything making perfect sense. Is that not witchy and goth as fuck? Is what no, it, it, it very much is. Now I will always watch this movie thinking Donna Reed is a witch. I mean, she's a badass. <laughs> By the way, she's a badass. I know you said that she felt like they didn't like her on the film, but she still kind of stood up to Lionel Barrymore. Did you hear the story? Like, No. She, all right, so... Um, she was a farm girl at heart who came to Los Angeles uh, via from Iowa. And Lionel Barrymore is like, you're a movie star. You're not a farm girl. If you're a farm girl, milk that cow. I'll give you $50 if you milk that cow. And she's like, rolls up her sleeves, milks the cow. And she's like, pay me. She's like, <laughs> like, yeah, she's just like, I love that she was just like, she said it was the easiest 50 bucks she ever made. But I just love that she's like, she seems like someone who, just didn't take any shit. And I, and I, I love her character in this film. And it's a very tough thing. We're talking about the idea of perspective and looking at female characters in and on this list where I think a lot of times female characters are given short shrift. Uh, and this is a very defined female character. And I would go back and say that Frank Capra so far in the two films that we've watched does a great job with his female characters. They are alive. They're interesting. They are smart and I just think really well written. Yeah, I think he really likes an interesting woman. By the way, I've read her um biography, Donna mm-hmm. Reed's biography. It's great. Like, really? Oh yeah. She's I mean, she's a really fascinating person. I only knew her from the Donna Reed show when I was a kid. But um yeah, like she grew up 
on a farm during the Depression. You know, that was her childhood. So she really was like, you know, dirt under her fingernails. Like she got it. Those are her earliest memories are being really, really, really poor in the Dust Bowl. But no, she's funny as hell. Like yeah. when she's making out or trying to seduce Bailey when they're a little yeah. bit older, when um, before they get married, and he is having this push-pull. Like you can tell that he is afraid of what being in love with her is going to mean for his life. Yes. You know, he's terrified of it. And her mother is, like, yelling down because her mother is like, get the phone, it's Sam. And she yells back that she and Bailey are making violent love. I laughed so hard at that. Again, this is 1946, and I'm like, I just always associated Capra as being more sappy, syrupy kind of thing. And this, and it's not that. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning here, here. Um, and that is why, if you don't mind me saying, the one thing I do not buy in this film mm-hmm. Is that when George Bailey sees what life would be like if he never existed, Yeah, Mary's like a nervous old maid spinster. Yeah. I'm like, uh-uh. Because Mary would marry Sam, and Mary would be the woman rich in furs, and Mary would be fine. It, it's actually what Scrooge, the movie with Bill Murray, did so well. Karen Allen becomes a successful business. Like, she gives up her charity job, and you see her in this moment where she's like, oh, I don't care about poor children. Like, you just see her as this rich, miserly person. I don't know. I think it it was a, a weird choice to say, like, she's broken without him. I, I agree. It's true. Like, in, that's not how it goes in the book. Like, in the book, oh. she gets married, and she has a kid, and he shows up at her house, and she's like, oh, it's my kid. Who are you? Oh. And he's devastated by it. She's fine. It was Capra's choice to make her, like, a nervous spinster, or I, one of the writers. I didn't one like of that. the bazillions of writers. I think it would have been more interesting to make the like the uh, the hotty toddy lady about town to be like a nervous spinster like maybe maybe that doesn't work in the whole sense of anything i love that hotty toddy lady though I she love was her great so much but by the way just to say one more thing about donna reed not supposed to be in the movie they wanted gene arthur from mr smith goes to washington to kind of come in here i mean the movie it, you know was originally even conceived for Cary Grant. And then when Capra came in, replaced him with Jimmy Stewart, and kind of seemed like he was just bringing over his whole Mr. Smith team in, in many respects. Yeah, I mean, this film feels just like greatest hits of the people Capra loves. I yeah. mean, you, you've even got like uh, Thomas Mitchell as Uncle Billy, Uncle Billy like the crazy man, who we've actually already seen like twice already. Uh, Thomas Mitchell, he was Diz, the reporter in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay. He was also the mayor in High Noon. He's a character actor who just, like, keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And and I will say, also responsible for another great gaffe in this movie. There's a scene where he's leaving uh, the party. Jimmy Stewart's outside uh, kind of just being a little bit upset and depressed. And uh, he's drunkenly stumbles off. And as he stumbles off, you hear, like, you know, like a trash can uh, thing. And, and in the film, you are assuming, oh, that's Uncle Billy. He just, like, crashed into trash cans because he's so drunk. But truthfully, what happened was there was a PA on set who just dropped a bunch of props as soon as he walked off set. So when Jimmy Stewart's smiling, he's smiling at the prop guy who dropped all the props. Uh, and it was and it, it, it works out great. They actually paid that PA like a speaking role because of that addition to the film. So I don't know how much you guys are planning to eat at the holiday table this season. But you know what? If you have on your MyFit jeans, it doesn't matter because they are going to fit to you. They are going to stretch to you. And they are the jeans that are designed to fit all bodies, all the time, all women. They have you covered. The way MyFit jeans works is they are made of the softest fabric. It is called Flex Tech Denim. That means they conform to your waist. They conform to your curves. They will never bag. They will never sag. And all you got to do is pick out one of two sizes. There is stunning. That fits regular sizes 2 to 12. And there is gorgeous. And that fits 14 to 20. 
Once you pick out your size, then you pick out your wash. They got dark wash, light wash, and black. That's a jean color for every outfit. And you know what? Everyone looks great in these jeans. And if you want to check it out for yourself, go to myfitjeans.com or their Instagram or their Facebook, and you can see pictures of real life women and real life bodies putting on these jeans and being like, hey, how do I look, man? Or you can try them out yourself. You can try them risk-free for 30 days. And if you're not satisfied with your jeans, you can return them for a full refund. They will even cover shipping. You're going to love these jeans. And right now they're offering us an exclusive deal for people who listen to Unspooled. You can buy one pair and get it 15% off. And you know what? If you buy two pairs of jeans, if you want to get like dark wash, light wash, the second pair is 50% off. So all you got to do is you go to myfitjeans.com and enter the code UNSPOOLED. You got that? MyFitJeans.com, enter the code UNSPOOLED to get 15% off your first pair of MyFitJeans or 50% off your second pair. UNSPOOLED, U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D for this unbelievable deal at MyFitJeans. Enjoy. Happy holidays, you guys. And you know what? This holiday season, Earwolf wants to spread some cheer. Or as we say, Cheerwolf. Yes, Cheerwolf. We are very corny over here, but we love it because we have special episodes all over the network just for you guys you're listening to one of them now. You're listening to Unspooled's episode on It's a Wonderful Life. But there is so much more. On Yo, Is This Racist? You got Andrew T. and Tani Newsom. They're talking to Kulap about holiday racism, which is a whole giant box of things that you have to unwrap and look at and examine. And blah. Um, Over at Offbook, they have not just one holiday theme musical, not just two holiday three musicals. They have three holiday themed musicals for you to indulge in and get stuff stuck in your head all holiday season that you can be singing to people and then be like, listen to this episode, you will understand what's going on with me. Uh, Improv for Humans, they have a special episode on the best of the Bible. And on Are You Talking, R.E.M., Remy, the Scots are talking about every single R.E.M. holiday single released. If that is not enough, you can check out even more special holiday episodes from Comedy Bang Bang, Paul over How Did This Get Made, Getting Curious, Who Charted, Freedom, Everything. Guys, Happy holidays. Your stocking of podcasts is very, 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 very full. Merry Cheerwolf to all of you. I will say, my heart is broken for Violet. Violet has her eye on him, too. Violet never gets a break. And that's the hottie toddy we're talking about, Violet. Yeah. Violet almost gets a chance at the dance. You know, she's, like, surrounded by boys, but she's like, oh, no, she has her eye on him. And then he sees Mary from across the room. And that is it. That is sad. Although there is this great Violet moment. I mean, I love Violet. I mean, there's a great moment where, like, Violet sees him as she's like walking down the street and she's like, oh, this is just the outfit I wear when I don't care what I'm wearing at all. And then she like continues to cross um, an intersection and there's like a car accident. Three guys are staring at her. You literally hear the car. Auga. Yeah. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff I feel like just got transplanted into Who Framed Roger Rabbit without me understanding it at all. Right. That actress, by the way, Gloria Graham. Mm -hmm. Do you know about Gloria? No, not at all. A lot of people don't know about Gloria Graham, which is interesting because Gloria Graham, there was a movie about her that came out last year with Annette Bening as Gloria Graham. Okay. It was called uh, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. I actually like pulled a little clip of it if you want to hear like yeah. the voice of Annette Bening as Gloria Graham being still a total sex pot. Have you seen the movie Saturday Night Fever? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Actually, I saw it three times. Oh, so you like disco dancing? Oh, God. Um... Well, I like drunk dancing. Oh, so if I make you a drink, you come into my room and hustle with me. I need a partner for my dance class. To set that up, like, posthumously? I, I don't know how you... But yeah. Pos, poscliplyously? Yes. Um, that movie takes place when, as an actress, she's basically shown from Hollywood because what she did is she was married to the director of Rebel Without a Cause for a while. Okay. Um, Ray. 
And he came home one day and she was in bed with his 13-year-old son. Whoa. Uh, so they got a divorce. And then when the son got older, she married the son. And they had a bunch of kids. And it was the scandal that ruined her career forevermore. Well, you said you have issues with this character, right? Well, no, no, no. I'm just in. I, I, I don't have issues with the character as the way she is in the film. I'm okay. just. I have issues with anybody who doesn't like her character. Oh, okay. Because I think they do her character pretty sympathetically. Like you watch her evolve. That's She's what I was going to say. Boy, crazy, lovely girl who kind of starts to run out of options. And and I feel like it does a great job of talking about these ideas that happen in a small town, like you know the girl that. Or a boy that you think is the most attractive, best person in your high school, you know, what happens to them, you know, 20 years later? You know, it, there there are things, these universal themes that are in this film that I think never go out of fashion. And and that is, like, I love watching her arc. And I love that she kind of has this triumphant ending. Like she's going to leave town. You know, she's going to do, I mean, basically everyone leaves town but him. And in a weird way, by him not leaving town, you realize he is the town. Like, he's the only person in that town that could engender all that goodwill. Obviously, he's in the world where he doesn't exist. She's kind of in this weird kind of Biff Tannen, Back to the Future 2 world of, like, uh, you know, essentially being like a showgirl stripper. And getting dragged out of a bar by the cops. By the way... Just uh, while we're here for a second, when it becomes Pottersville, I love that every store was like essentially a showgirl club. Like, like it was it was more intense than the Vegas Strip. Like, I don't even know how these places stay in business. It's a small town. Like, even though it's Pottersville, it's like there's I mean, there's not that much need for dancing girl clubs. (laughs) I mean, I I don't even think anything could sustain like that. I mean, it's like fights and jazz and midnight dancing. There's tiki bars. There's burlesque. And do, if I can just say so, Pottersville yeah. looks kind of lit. And also, I, I liked Pottersville. I feel like, <laughs> you know, maybe let's go 50-50 on it. And also, I feel like the George Bailey who left uh, Bedford Falls at 18, if he had arrived out of Pottersville like then, he'd be like, this place is great. Right. He would have loved to have seen all the uh, all the different people of the night. <laughs> But where Pottersville becomes dark and where what I think is like smart about it mm-hmm. is it's almost just more in the character's eyes of the people who have changed from being still there and living in Pottersville. That when he sees his mom, her eyes are like colder and meaner and more suspicious. When he sees Nick, the bartender, his eyes are meaner. It's, yeah. it's almost like the personal change in the people who have been shaped by staying in Pottersville in a town run by a rich old man who hates everybody. That that's much, much, much worse even than the dancing girls. Well, right, because there's no there's no um, camaraderie. It's a town built on commerce. And I think we were talking about that before. Like the idea of like the idea that big business can wreck the quaint nature of a small town and, and make people more concerned about money. I like uh, Martini's. I mean, Martini's is a tough place when they go back in its Pottersville. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good moment to play the speech that George Bailey gives that ends up sort of summoning up the movie and also ruining his life because it's so good. They're like, you must stay is the head of the building savings and loan. But it's basically this speech put in the middle of this film about how giant capitalism, soulless capitalism is going to crush the nation, is going to crush the world. And it's like this sticking up for the working man speech that I think is really beautiful. Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't make them better citizens, doesn't make them better customers. You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? 
until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I mean, it's a great speech. And I think sometimes when you hear that speech or you think of Jimmy Stewart, you think of that as the only side of Jimmy Stewart. You know, the this impassioned, the, the people matter. But it, it's it's just an element of his character here. It is just a part of him. It's not the only part of him. It's true. And speeches like that actually got It's a Wonderful Life flagged by the FBI. Yes, I heard about this. This is great. Tell, tell me a little yeah. bit more about this. So the FBI noticed that one of the giant plot points of the film is basically that bankers are evil. Although I would say, like... Potter is definitely an evil banker, but in his own way, George Bailey is a banker, too. He's just yeah. like a smaller, nicer banker. Well, he's a, a banker who is not just purely out for himself, which is, I mean, if that's a foreign, I mean, I guess that's a foreign concept. Exactly. But the FBI did not see it that way. And so they wrote to HUAC, to the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which seems to come up like every other episode because it's yeah. so important in film history. And they they said that this film, quote, attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This is a common trick used by communists. Wow. To which I will also add, by the way, you know, that this is also a code film. Yeah. And the code had a real rule, like established from the gangster picture era, where crime does not pay. Okay. Except in this movie, for some reason, when a banker does the crime, he gets away with it because there is no part of this movie where Potter gives back the $8,000. Yes. Okay. Well, Potter is the villain of this film. And I think what's so interesting about him is obviously Potter is the bad man in this film. I get it. But he's also a businessman. And I get that, too. But he's like, I must crush the competition businessman. Although there right. is this speech that... Uh, that Bailey's dad gives trying to explain Potter. Okay. And when he gives the speech, I was thinking of you thinking about Schindler, thinking about Schindler explaining Garrett. And I was like, oh, he's explaining also what might happen to his son. Oh, what's eating that old money-grubbing buzzard anyway? Oh, he's a sick man, frustrated, sick in his mind, sick in his soul if he has one. He hates everybody that has anything that he can't have. Hates us mostly, I guess. Because what I think is interesting about that film is... George Bailey could teeter on the edge of hating his brother, Henry. Right. Because Henry is the guy who definitely gets everything he can't have. Right. You know, he gets the heroism. He gets to leave town. He gets to have a job outside of this. He gets all of it. He gets to save lives. He gets to have done big stuff with his life. But oddly because of George. But oddly because of George. And I think there's a version of this movie that would be like the lazy, more typical version, where whenever Henry shows up, he's also just like this fatuous jerk. Right. And you're like, oh, screw that guy. You know, he doesn't deserve it. Like, he's yeah. like, hey, coming in town. What's up, y'all? But the movie doesn't make that choice. And I really respect it. That Henry is also a good guy. Yeah, I, I, I think that Henry isn't doing anything to spite George. He's just... You know, luck is dealing them different hands. And, you know, there's that moment uh, where Uncle Billy, you know, where he loses the $8,000 to Potter. He's like, it could have been George if he didn't lose his hearing because he would have done it. He like, you know, I feel like there is a belief in him as a character. It's not like, oh, my brother gets all the opportunities. And I'm just sitting here complaining. It's just sort of like it just fate just kind of separated them out. 
Um, did you know that Potter, though, was going to even be a bigger part of these two brothers and their relationship? In the original uh, draft of the script, you know, where George saves his brother Harry, the scene had them playing ice hockey on the river, uh, which was on Potter's property. And Potter doesn't like them playing hockey on his property. And George shoots the puck and it goes astray and breaks the no trespassing sign and it lands in Potter's yard. And Potter becomes irate and the gardener releases attack dogs, which causes the boys to run and flee. And that's how Harry falls in the ice. And then George saves him with the same result. But they kind of... I think pulled back a little bit on Potter. I mean, that's a smart choice to get rid of that because I can yeah. see somebody being like, clever twist. Yeah. He's been the bad guy all along. But then you just set up a world where it's payback on so many unnecessary levels that yeah. you don't need it. Like the idea of fate being as cruel as Potter, I think, is better. And seeing Potter berate his father, you know, for George to see that, that's so much more soul crushing than mustache twirling evil villainary, right? Don't you think like, you know, it's sort of like he doesn't even know when to stop when a child's in the room. I feel like that speaks more of a person's character than anything, that to continue like, you know, doing that. And when the door closes, you can't hear it in the film, but if you watch it on closed caption, it, you know, he's like, why would you do that in front of my son? Like, you know, it's like, it's a crazy, I, I think that that speaks to the type of character he is. And and in a movie that you would describe as Capra-esque, you would expect that villain to pay his comeuppance at the end. But you were right. No, he doesn't. Nothing happens bad to Potter. Do you no. know Do you know when something bad did happen to Potter? When? <laughs> uh, it's an old Saturday Night Live episode. Okay. Uh, William Shatner was hosting, and they decided to do, like, the long-lost, missing final reel of It's a Wonderful Life. And so what happens here is you've got Dana Carvey as Jimmy Stewart, of course. Uh, getting the money, everything going well. Then uh, Uncle Billy coming in and being like, I remembered what happened to the money. And then this happening. All right, everyone. I remembered. I remembered what I did with the money, the $8,000. Well, that's great. That's great, Uncle Billy. Well, what, what'd you do with it? I was in the bank. I had it in a newspaper. I remember giving it to someone. Well, who, who'd you give it to? No, oh, wait. Now, I just called Clarence at the bank. He told me that old man Potter deposited exactly $8,000 right after I left. It was him! Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go get it! Now you say where you are, George Bailey, you're in enough trouble already. You made one mistake, Mr. Potter. You're double crossed me and you left me alive. That is a great sketch. It is basically him beating up John Lovett for the next minute and a half. I mean, that is not the only It's a Wonderful Life parody they have done on Saturday Night Live. They've done a couple through the years. But yes. They just did one this weekend. And a big one, one that even uh, upset... <laughs> The person it was about so much that he threatened to take away the broadcast license of NBC. <laughs> but I don't think I can do this anymore. I might finally eat a salad and explode. What seems to be the trouble, Donald? Who are you? Stay back. Relax. I mean you no harm. My name is Clarence, and I was sent here from heaven. Sometimes I wish I had never been president. A world where you were never president, eh? 
I think we can arrange that. Hey, Mr. Trump, I just wanted to say Merry Christmas. It's President Trump, Sarah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> no, seriously, though, uh, I, I just wanted to thank you for suggesting I go into PR. I've made so much work, money working for so many awesome companies like Facebook and Ashley Madison and the Romaine Lettuce Association. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Tom. Yeah, I think threatening to uh, take away the license of NBC is exactly what Potter would do if he was president. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say earlier, I don't feel like he's a bad guy. He's a businessman. He may be a dick, but he's a businessman. But that's he when he takes the eight thousand dollars, he's a bad then he becomes a bad guy. Yeah, and I will say to establish that he's a bad guy, maybe I only noticed this for the first time because uh of the color, but on his desk there's a little metal skull. <laughs> I'm not kidding. When you watch this, there is a little metal skull on Potter's desk. So He's he's a bad guy. Um, and, you know, I'll say that probably not in life he wasn't a bad guy. I don't know that much about Lionel Barrymore, although, as I say it, it doesn't feel true. But he did convince Jimmy Stewart to do this movie, one of the people to kind of get him to to do this. Yeah, and, I mean, I can tell you two things about Barrymore. Okay, yeah. Uh, one, he's Drew Barrymore's great uncle. Uh, and two, he um, – well, I'm going to make it three – Two, he was acting in movies from 1909. He's one of the very first actual right. actor, 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 actors. And three, he was actually really in a wheelchair because like Potter has that crazy oh. carved, elaborate church temple looking and there's some wheelchair. Gr- there's some great wheelchair work in this movie. I mean, there's a moment, I started laughing out loud, like when he wants to make a point, the person that, you know, is uh, is pushing his wheelchair, like pushes him in like there's a few like you know it's like it kind of to make his point the wheelchair goes in I love that moment and you know and the wheelchair does a lot of movement it, like he gets up for certain points it's down a little bit lower for other points but yeah he kind of convinced Jimmy Stewart to do it after Capra did kind of a bad job at selling It's a Wonderful Life to Jimmy Stewart like Jimmy Stewart was in a in an interview at one point he's like yeah Capra you know told me the premise of the movie and uh I was like so Frank, you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down named Clarence who can't swim and I save him. When do we start? You know, it's like, <laughs> cause I think on paper, I mean, I think the, the premise is great, but it, you really, I can't picture, uh, Cary Grant doing this. No, I think Cary Grant just seems too Teflon. Yeah. You yeah. need somebody who feels hometown Americana. And I, I feel like Donna Reed also has a sweetness to her, even though she's a witch. Um, <laughs> and, and I may even now add to your thing that maybe uh, Potter is her warlock. You know, maybe they have some sort of weird Stephen Kingian relationship uh, where he's keeping her there under, you know, a spell. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I just think like, Lionel Barrymore is a is a great villain. You know, maybe it wasn't him. He wouldn't be in a wheelchair. There's something interesting about him being in a wheelchair. Um, and there's something kind of funny about the money that gets lost being wrapped into newspaper, just like it was in Psycho later on. Mm. You know, this money gets put in a newspaper, and that is it. It is gone, and you never see it again. Which is why I don't keep any of my money in newspapers. That's very smart. And also, I wish big investors' giant corporate money took their money out of newspapers and let us be George Bailey-style independent. But that's my tiny Amy, this is not your chance to get on your soapbox about the free press. Oh, blah, blah, blah. No. Free press. You. <laughs> you write articles about who is sponsoring the paper, and that is it. Only review things with the people who are buying ad space. That's all. <laughs> you know this this movie is really interesting because it goes to very dark places, and I wanted to talk about that scene 
where Jimmy Stewart has just kind of gotten his fill. And he goes to Martini's and he's getting drunk. And you see him kind of collapse in this moment. I mean, he, he is sobbing. There's a reason why the film gets more grainy in that moment. You probably didn't notice it because you saw it in color. But um, basically, Capra uh, pushed in on a shot, which is something now we you can do with digital cameras and stuff like that. But there it was a little bit harder. So when you pushed in, you kind of lose the quality of film because on this one take, Jimmy Stewart just started sobbing, thinking about his life. And the weight of his character in that moment, you buy like, He's going to go kill himself. It doesn't feel like a Hollywood, like, well, if no one loves me, I'm going to kill myself. You know, it's you, not like a four-year-old stomping out of the house. Yeah. You feel like that was the last straw. Like, he doesn't know what to do. I'm thinking about the scene. It's getting me worked up there. It's like, you know, he would never yell at his kids. And he does that. And then you just see, like, he's out of options. Yeah. When he yells at his kids, that moment right before this, one thing that Capper does is, you know, his daughter is playing on the piano the whole time, like yeah. Hark the Herald Angel Sing. I timed it. She plays that song badly for five minutes in the film oh, to drive wow. you and him and everyone insane. He like doubles down on that. Like he makes him broken. You know, committing suicide is nothing to obviously be taken lightly, but I feel like sometimes it can be dramatized in a glamorous way. And I feel like the way that they did it was really humane and and emotional like you you buy that this character who has always been able to keep his chin up doesn't know what to do okay although i will say one thing about that bar scene before we move in is he gets into that fist fight with mr welsh the teacher's husband who he had just screamed at on the phone like wished violence upon the man's wife and then the man runs into him at this bar beats him up i think he's slightly justified in, like, um, taking a punch, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, back in the 40s, if you called and cussed out, yeah, someone's wife. And by the way, even now, yeah. You know what? He's totally justified. He is totally justified. And Nick and Martini, like, ban him from the bar. And in Bedford Falls, where there's only two bars, that that just sucks. I just want to say that. I feel like Martini would let him back in in a couple of days. It just, <laughs> like, you know, it, was like, it wasn't like a permanent ban. It was, like, kind of like a, a soft, a soft I mean, ban. Is Martini the nicer one? Like, it, I, don't, I thought they were both kind of the same. Right. But there's that thing in the alt world where, like, the bar goes from belonging to Martini to belonging to Nick. And for some reason, that's a bad thing. Like, when it goes back to the other <laughs> Bedford Falls, Nick doesn't get to own anything. And I wonder what that choice was. I guess because... Uh, Jimmy Stewart gave people small, he, you know, he empowered small business owners. I mean, he did, you know, so maybe that, that was the, the choice behind that. I don't know. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Cause we get to see some time with the martini household and like people yeah. at the time. Yeah. I hadn't really, really thought about it until I read a little note on it that, you know, in 1946, it's not a popular time to be an Italian. Oh, interesting. You know, and he's got this Italian family in there that he treats very lovingly. Yeah. And I think Capra was maybe making a tiny statement with that. And then we talked a little bit about where we see Pottersville versus Bedford Falls. But I guess what I was really surprised at with this movie was I thought that Clarence was throughout this movie. It's arguably the last 15 minutes of the film. And that was really surprising to me. Like, I thought for sure Clarence was integral to the central plot. I mean, he's watching it. Uh, up in the stars, and I love the way they introduce him with the two stars kind of blinking, and then the other star kind of runs in. It's a yeah. beautiful way to do like colorize. God. I was like, oh, it's so two thousand one. Oh, that's so. I mean, I can't <laughs> even picture that colorize. I mean, I love the way that they do that, and so again, so smart and funny, 
Um, and, and you feel like you've known this character the whole film, but I didn't realize that it really is 15 minutes of the, the angel slash ghost kind of character, you know, running him through this, this end part of his life. Yeah, there's that kind of modernish freeze frame where they like freeze on him. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I like this George Bailey. I like his face," and then he disappears basically. And you're right; he like shows up and then he disappears again. Although I was really curious how old Clarence is because I think he announces at one time that he's like born in 1703, right? Or he like announces his age. He's like, "I'm this many years old." And when I subtracted, it, I was like, "Okay, 1703. Interesting." But then he's holding a copy of uh, Tom Sawyer, yeah, and saying that he can't wait for Huck Finn to be out. And Tom Sawyer comes out in 1876, Huck Finn in 1884. So Clarence died when he was like 170, basically. Well, you know, back then, Amy people lived a lot longer. It's like Moses times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's the uh, same way that Potter doesn't get his comeuppance. We don't spend that much time on Clarence being triumphant about him getting his wings. We, You know, it's obviously the most famous moment of this entire film that you don't have to see the movie, but you know it is like, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. But that's really his conclusion. There's not like a... Thanks so much. You taught me so much. We did it together. You know, there's not like um, Jimmy Stewart going like, oh, my gosh, I totally realized the whole reason why you were here. You know, I think Scrooge has it. One of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Scrooged, E.D. I love uh, Scrooge. I love Scrooge. Um, you know, even Bill Murray does it in a very funny way. But there's like a comeuppance. It was like, I realized this and then I got this and then I did this. You know, he just basically falls to his knees. It's like, I, I want, I no, I'm here. It's like, and we're back. You know, not that he has to make amends for anything wrong, but I was really impressed with how they didn't overplay that hand. They don't make it too cutesy. They don't make it like. They don't make it an angel reveal. Like, oh my God, he was an angel. Yeah. They don't play it for suspense. They're like, he's an angel. We know this before George does. But Minute George would know it. He's not hiding it from George. Not he's at all. that he's an angel. And what do you think is in his back? Do you think there are empty holes where the wings should go? Because the guy like who runs Mr. the. Mr. Br- potato Head? A Mr. Well, angel Lego Potato Head? Well, because that guy who runs the bridge is so wide eyed. He's like falling, literally falling out of his chair. I'm like, what is he reacting to? It's a man in a nightshirt. <laughs> Just like a literal spit take. And also yeah. there's that interesting thing in that same shot where for some reason they shoot Clarence talking to Bailey through a clothesline. Yeah. And so the entire scene is just divided in half diagonally by this clothesline. And I was like, is it like separating the metaphysical world from the physical world? Like what is happening here? But it is such a old a, choice that I was trying to figure out why on earth he did that. Maybe again, it was like for decency code reasons, you know, they didn't want to let him see his bum. Um, I, you know what? Show I, me I, that bum. Show me that bum. Give me that Clarence <laughs> bum. I will tell you that Clarence is a dumb character uh, and I don't know if he deserves his wings because I don't think he really did much. Um, and because if he just like took George out of his life, what did he do? He didn't convince him of anything. He just showed him an alt future. If that's all it takes to get wings these days, come on. That's a bold move though. You can tell he kind of came up with it on the fly. He was like oh, trying okay. to logic him out of it. Oh. He was like, "Hey, oh, so he would have uh, maybe. Oh, so that wasn't his plan all along. You didn't think that Clarence was like, I'll just go down and do the old show you your life kind of thing. I don't think so. I mean, I, but I could be wrong. I feel like I feel like there's just enough of a pause. He's like, this guy. I don't know. Okay, I'll give you what you want. You weren't born. Okay, well, because the reason why I think Clarence is dumb is because uh, when he's drying out his soft cover 
uh, edition of Tom Sawyer, it's like, that book's never going to be readable again, buddy. Like, just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> like, well, who has ever gotten a book wet? Then, then you can go back to read it. You can't. It's a, It becomes a disgusting thing then. Um, I will say this. Yes. So Clarence, did you know that Clarence in the 90s winds up getting his own movie? I heard about this. And Starring some, Robert Carradine yes, as Clarence? Yes, Because I pulled the trailer. Oh, please, let me watch this. In 1946, an angel named Clarence helped George Bailey find a wonderful life. Now, 45 years later, he's at it again. You know, I wouldn't ordinarily say this, but that hat, it really doesn't do you justice. The Hollywood Reporter calls Clarence a perfect holiday tale. Variety says it has just the right mix of whimsy. Put a miracle into your Christmas season when Robert Carradine stars as Clarence. An encore presentation of a Family Channel world premiere movie. Tuesday night at 8, 7 central. That's amazing. And for some reason, I thought it was David Carradine, which I thought was even crazier. Um, (laughs) David Carradine would make more sense, I think. He's older. So he's coming back after he got his wings. I mean, this movie... As like a younger, hotter version of yeah. Um, You know, like the other thing too is that there's been, and we'll talk to um, Carolyn Grimes about this a little bit, uh, this sequel that has been going around for a while that in 2013 they announced they're going to continue the story with a sequel. It's a wonderful life. The rest of the story, um, which was going to come out in 2015, um, basically Paramount said, no, you can't do that. So the sequel <laughs> was going to answer... Did Mr. Potter get away with stealing $8,000? Did George ever get to build those bridges? Um, And the new twist was going to be that George Bailey is unlikable. And Aunt Zuzu, uh, who Carolyn Grimes played, she's going to come back, um, shows him how much better the world would be if he had never been born. And so, okay, so I guess then they would... make him go back in time and have like a reverse abortion. I don't know how they could re-engineer the reveal there. Like if you were never born, is that, would he go? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, maybe um, this is a good time to actually talk to Carolyn. All right, great. Okay, Paul, we got to talk to somebody special. We got to talk to somebody who's in this movie. You really? ready for this? Let's talk to Carolyn Grimes. She plays Lil Zuzu. Little Zuzu with the little bell. Oh, my goodness. One of the most famous lines in movie history is spoken by this actress. This is going to be very exciting. You know, Carolyn, when you were very, very young, you made almost a dozen movies super fast back to back. And I was wondering, what was Hollywood like as a child actress in the 40s? Well, I actually made 16. Wow. And um, I started when I was four. And it was a great time. It was a wonderful, fun time to be in the movies. I mean, you know, I didn't know any difference since I was six years old. And when I did the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, but I'd already done four movies. So it was old hat to me. And the movies were the industry in Hollywood. That was what everybody did. They were somehow connected with the industry. And so for the kids of the hands and the grips and all that you know it was nothing new for them to be in the business and doing uh what they you know have their kids be in the movies movies too so it wasn't that unusual how aware were you of like different directors and different directors styles uh there were but you know i was a little kid um all i knew is that i was either scared of them or not. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about what it was like to work as a child actor. Like, were there rules in place to make sure that you didn't work the whole day? Well, we were there for the whole day. Okay. Uh, every day we worked. And um, we had a, 
person from the health and welfare department there with us at all times. And they were also our teacher, so we didn't miss school. Was Frank Capra one of the directors you were scared of or not? Oh, I wasn't scared of him. He was he was just a dream. He was really sweet. Um, he would get on his knees and look us in the eye to tell us what he wanted us to do. He was very gentle, and he communicated very well, and you felt very comfortable around him. Why do you think he chose you to play this major part in It's a Wonderful Life? Um, I think it was a God thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I went for the casting call, and there was a woman who had a daughter there, and she accidentally spilled some coffee on my dress. Well, supposedly accidentally, after after I had the interview, I heard my mom and another mother talking, and they weren't so sure it was an accident. But anyway, <laughs> it didn't bother me one bit to go in with a dirty dress. I just walked in there and chatted away. So I don't know if I was a chatty Kathy or what, but he um, he liked me, I guess, and I got the part. And I feel honored that I have this this mantle because it's given me the opportunity to touch so many lives and be a part of people's Christmases all over the world. What more could you ask for than that? I mean, it's a real blessing to me. That's amazing. And when did you realize that you were a part of something so iconic. Obviously, you're a child. And, you know, like you said, you did 16 films. It, it was probably just another film in the mix. And when this movie first comes out, it's not a huge hit. So when did it like start to change? Well, 1980 was the time it did it for me. I had somebody knock on my door. I'd left Hollywood many, many, many years before. And I didn't even think of those days. And someone knocked on my door and they said, were you the little girl that was in the movie? It's a wonderful life. And I said, well, yes. And they said, well, can we have an interview? And I said, oh, okay. So they did an interview. And that was one of many. From then on, we started having a lot of interviews. And um, then I started getting fan mail. And I thought, what in the world's going on here? So I, I actually took the time, sat down, and watched the film for the first time. I was wow. 40. Wow. <laughs> so that was when I realized there was magic there. All right, because to jump back a little bit for those years in between, you know, in the 40s, you were voted top Moppet. It, and then what happened after yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Um, my mother started getting sick when I was eight. And you need a pushy stage mom to get you in the business and throughout all the ins and outs and put you out there. If you don't have that, then you're, you're not going to go very far. And that's when my career started to slow down was when she started getting sick. And then she eventually died when I was 14. So um, it was, it was long and she could no longer accompany me and my father would have to to pay for a guardian to come with me for interviews. And if I got a part, he'd have to pay someone to be my guardian on the set. And it was a little much for him. Well, I love that right now you've been, like you wrote a cookbook. It's a wonderful cookbook where you came up with recipes inspired by the film. And the one that really caught my eye was the old man Gower cocktail, which is OJ champagne. I'm like, okay, that sounds like I know this recipe. And then you decided to add a splash of Tabasco sauce. Yes. <laughs> a little bit of kick. I do that myself. I like a little kick. It's good. I've well, never it tried this. It really is. Yeah. You have to try it. Well, now talk to me about this sequel. 
I've heard that there's talk a little bit about a sequel that you might be in it. Is that true or is that just internet rumor? Uh, there is a sequel being discussed, but this is about the fourth or fifth year, sixth year it's been discussed now. I'm okay. not sure. <laughs> I think it's the fourth year, fifth, I don't know. Anyway, I it's a good story. I love the script. I think it works. It has nothing to do with the movie uh, as far as any kind of a copy or a, you know any kind of an imitation of. It's the rest of the story. It's, um, it's what happens to people afterwards. I mean, to not see this movie until you're 40, how many times do you think you've seen it now? Have you, have you caught up with the rest of us? Oh, three or four hundred, probably. I'm probably <laughs> way ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... I, I travel all over the year, you know, um, introducing the film and then watching it with folks. And so I see it a lot. What's the number one thing people come up and ask you? What was it like working with Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> Number one question anybody ever asked. And and it was wonderful. He was a great guy. He was calm. He was patient. He was intelligent. He was funny. I liked working with him a lot. Now, as far as seeing the celebrations around this film, I'm sure you've seen big ones. Like every year you go up to Seneca Falls, New York, for like the biggest... It's a Wonderful Life celebration. Uh, and that seems amazing. It's sort of like the whole town kind of rallies behind the film for this this week, right? Of, of just a week-long celebration. Um, what is that like? Oh, it's fabulous. Um, I started it 16 years ago. And oh, wow. it's been going... Uh, I've been attending that long. And it's it just gets bigger and better every year. There's so many activities going on. There's just... Wonderful. They have two wonderful dinners. Um, one of them is a copy of the opening night at the Ambas- Ambassador Hotel for the opening of It's a Wonderful Life. And there's there's so many things that everybody offers to do. And this year there were four of us that came in from the from members of the cast. And then um, Donna Reed's daughter Mary Owen came, and her brother Tony Owen and just um it's it's just wonderful it's great you've seen the film so much you've talked to so many different people involved you've celebrated with so many people what are like the one or two really fun things that you would point out to a watcher of this film that maybe has seen it a handful of times but never noticed that or 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 never put together this thing that might not make sense well there's something on mr potter's desk when he offers george a job Okay. And it's a skull. Oh, wow. And it's the skull faces Mr. Potter. And there's a heavy chain on the back of it that faces George. So if George takes the job, he'll be chained to Mr. Skullduggery Potter the rest of his life. Ooh, I love that. I have yeah. always wondered what that skull is. Thank you so much. <laughs> Where does the name Zuzu come from? Well, there was a product made in the early 1900s called Zuzu's Ginger Snaps, and they were made by the National Biscuit Company. And um, that would be probably Nabisco today. Okay. But if you remember, um, George comes up the stairs, and he's so happy to see his kids after his unborn sequence. And I come out my bedroom door, and I say, Daddy, and he says, Zuzu, my little ginger snap. 
that's where the name came from. You're named after a cookie. I was named after a cookie. <laughs> wow, that you know, and that makes me feel better because uh, I am a I am Snickerdoodle. That's what people call me, and uh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Carolyn. It was uh, lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. I have to say goodbye, Snickerdoodle. I just got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, bye bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to Carolyn for for chatting with us. And maybe we will make it up to Seneca Falls for the next It's a Wonderful Life fun run and uh, celebration. I do not run. Well, you maybe you'll have some of that Tabasco infused <laughs> uh, like mimosas. I think I'm, I'm down for that. Um, <laughs> that was fascinating hearing from Carolyn. And I wanted to talk about just the enduring popularity of this film. I think the reason why this movie is so successful is because um, at a certain point, this film lost a copyright attached to it, which allowed it to be played over and over again. It lapsed in 1974, making it available royalty-free to anyone who wanted to show it for the next 20 years. And the free-for-all ended in 1994, but the only version of It's a Wonderful Life that I ever saw was when the UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is where I am from uh, comedically, um, were hired by Comedy Central to redub it's a Wonderful Life. What? So this clip is from when Jimmy Stewart, we talked about the scene a little bit earlier, and Donna Reed are on their uh, walk home after they fall into the pool. Be my alien love slave. George, please stop this. I've got plans. You can be in my new movie, Mary. Forget the others. Just do the script. It'll be great. We'll make real money. We'll be in color. Do the right lines. Okay, okay. Uh, let's see. What's what's my line here? Uh, yeah, your caboose, my lady. You may kiss my hand. So that was they did an entire the entire run of the film they did on Comedy Central revoiced it. You can find a couple clips of it online. Who would uh, you want to be if they did it again? Oh, I would like to be. I mean, I would like to be Clarence. I think that would be a fun part to play but um i think the juiciest part is uh is potter yeah potter a real i mean a real, i mean there can you do evil you're so lovely well you know you can check out showtime's brand new show black monday you can see just exactly <laughs> what i'm capable of uh january 20th on showtime me don Cheadle, andrew randalls and regina hall uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to make weird plugs like that. Yeah. Can I just say that, you know, um, Seneca Falls, the town being the inspiration of Bedford Falls, they uh, took one of their hotels and they renamed it Hotel Clarence because oh, they've wow. been getting so much tourism because they actually have like an It's a Wonderful Life convention. Right, because Bedford Falls was, the, was basically based on Seneca Falls. Yeah, they say. Okay. They say. People say. People like say it. that. I want to go there. Yeah. Well, if you want to go there, they've been doing these online videos to promote it. Okay. And they're, it's a little cooking show called It's a Wonderful Dish where they have some <laughs> well, a person from the restaurant at the Hotel Clearance talk about a dish. And I just want to play a couple seconds of oh, that. Oh, please. To another episode of It's a Wonderful Dish. I'm your host, Tiffany Collinsworth. And in studio, I have with me uh, Benjamin Bird, who is the uh, chef de cuisine. Yes. Oh, my God. I got it. Yes, I'm so excited. I'm terrible with that. I'm surprised I even got your name right. Um, he's joining <laughs> us from the kitchen at the Hotel Clarence. And um, 
he's here to discuss a bib salad, which is a really quick, really easy, fun summer dish that you can make right at home, or you can go over to Hotel Clarence and enjoy it yourselves, right? Yeah, I would, uh, yeah. And by the way, as she says bib salad, the title of the video is BLT salad. So what are they making, a bib salad or a BLT salad? I actually did watch the rest of the video. There yeah. is bacon involved. And it is beautiful bib lettuce when they do break it out. And also the video has only 26 views. So support the hotel clearance, man. Uh, we got to get there. That's where we're going to do our first live show. Amy, let's talk about this movie. It's a feel-good movie. It's a classic. We know it doesn't succeed when it comes out. Uh, it's a box office failure. Um were there bad reviews or was it positively reviewed? Oh, there were bad reviews. There were bad reviews. I'll read one from Manny Farber, who wrote for The New Republic. Mm-hmm. He says, Frank Capra, Hollywood's Horatio Alger, lights with more cinematic know-how and zeal than any other director to convince movie audiences that American life is exactly like the Saturday evening post covers of Norman Rockwell. So already by then, he's like describing the Capra that you and I don't totally agree yeah. with. But he says, It's Wonderful Life, the latest example of Capricorn. Here we go. Capricorn, Ooh, that word going into usage. That shows his art at a hysterical pitch. Capra's moralizing, which is driven home in films packed with absurdly oversimplified characterizations and unbearable whimsy, which I don't find true here. I, I don't, don't find think true at all. Bailey is, like, oversimplified. Um, to make his points, Capra always takes an easy, simple-minded path that, that doesn't give much credit to the intelligence of the audience. And as for Jimmy Stewart's performance, Manny says that his character changes so drastically, he becomes a whimperer, a mean drunk, suicidal, that you wonder where this side of him has been hiding. And that amid admirers of the honest, hardworking, self-sacrificing character Stewart has played since he left Princeton are going to be uneasy when they see Jimmy's face light up like a Christmas tree at getting all this free dough. Interesting. I mean, I wonder if I'm looking at it through the lens of the time, if I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is Capricorn at that time. And then we have taken Capricorn and made it even more corny. Like, you know what I'm saying? So now he doesn't feel corny because all the stuff that we've done has made things way more corny. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like we are resistant to films that want to make us happy. Yeah. Until like 20 years go by. And then it's like we get this emotional distance where like that film existed to make those other people happy. And now they're gone and it's our movie. So it's okay or something where it's like we need this distance in order to say that it's that we are we are not above it. Well, don't you think it's like we were talking about this last week with Schindler's List that when you feel manipulated, you want to kind of strike out back. Well, I, I no, how dare you? But that's what. Every good movie does. Every good movie lets you get lost in these characters. As far as Jimmy Stewart's character, I totally buy this transition. Like, he he went from an idealistic young boy to a kind of a bitter old man. I, I think we, I think, I don't think that a bitter young boy becomes a bitter old man. I, I think that life affects this movie is a, over many, many years. I mean, you know. Yeah, and I will say that, I mean, to me... What I respect about the deletions that Capra made mm-hmm. is that he took away more of that, some of the heavy-handed religious stuff that had been there and made it more about the humanity of the town. Because I believe in the humanity of the town more than I believe in larger figures. Right. And so I like that that's where the grounding is. It's the, it, Clarence doesn't say like, ba-ba, here's a leprechaunish pot of gold. Right. He allows George Bailey to go back to his town and without doing anything himself, the townspeople ri- like rise up. It's not a miracle ending. Yeah. And I love that a lot because I think it takes this film, which opens up with angels and definitely has like a Christian mm-hmm. framing to feel slightly more open. 
to yeah. feel like the older I get, the more I cry at the ending. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, look, the other version would be the miracle of water into wine or, you know, it's like, why wouldn't Clarence just give him the $8,000? It would solve his problem. You know, it, like all Clarence does is let him see something that he's not looking at. You know, the people that he supported his entire life come to support him in his moment of need. And that's who he needs to turn to. He just, he doesn't have to always handle it by himself. He's never truly alone, you know, and and he's always going to be supported. And, and I think he spends the entire film trying to make it good for everybody else and not let himself get taken care of, which is something, you know, I can relate to too. I feel like, you know, that's something that's a lot of us kind of protect you know, like, well, I'll take care of myself. I don't need anyone else to take care of me. And I think that's a really interesting point of view. Amy, I, I know that the answer is a resounding yes, but uh, did this uh, movie get, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, sent up by The Simpsons? Oh, my God, so many times. This is a very heavily Simpsons eyes uh Referencing point, uh, the one that I picked is from an episode from season three of The Simpsons, an early one where I think they're still finding the tone of Simpsons because Homer Simpson winds up being really nice in this one. Like, lovingly, I think The Simpsons have gotten kind of mean over the past uh, few years. But this is from an episode called When Flanders Fails, and it's where Flanders tries to open up a store for only left-handed people with only left-handed things. And Homer makes a wish that he wants the left-handed store to go out of business. Uh, and it does, and it's in risk of being taken over by the Libertarian Party as their new headquarters. And then he gets a pang of conscience, and this happens. Hurry, Nettie, hurry! Oh, golly, it's a miracle! Come on, you lefties! Oh, what did I tell you? <laughs> it's all here, and it's all backwards! That's right! His turned, is it not, my tin-plated friend? Look at you, you who were once so proud. Feel the wrath of the left hand of Burns. Huzzah for the shopkeep! Huzzah! Homer, affordable track housing made us neighbors, but you made us friends. And Ned Flanders, the richest left-handed man in town. Wow, well, at least that, you know, that's not a fully direct parody. It's kind of an inspired by kind of moment. It is, and I do want to say as a left-handed person, I respect... I'm a left-handed person. What? Yeah. Wow, I would say that that is a crazy coincidence, except in that clip, basically everybody in Springfield is revealed to be a left-hander. Like, Burns <laughs> yeah, is I guess a left-hander. Right. Mo is wearing a shirt that says, <laughs> kiss me, I'm left-handed. <laughs> well, Amy, it's uh, 20 on the AFI Top 100 list. Number 20. Um... I personally think that that's a great placement. Uh, I I feel like it's, again, in my mind, in that world of Wizard of Oz, although not uh, as technically interesting as Wizard of Oz, but uh, as part of our fabric of America, I feel like that's a a pretty good slot. What do you think? I'm at peace with it. I'm at peace with it. I mean, I think this movie, for me, has just gotten better and better the more I've watched it. I think... I'm excited for you to watch this movie like 800 times. No, I can't wait to watch it again. I mean, yeah. And there's no wonder like uh, Capra and and Reed and Stewart, they all called it, it's their favorite movie. Not, you know, Jimmy Stewart said that his favorite character was uh, against, you know, in the movie Harvey, but this is his favorite movie. And, you know, and it's funny that Capra kind of is caught into uh, a John McTiernan situation here where he didn't think of the film as a Christmas movie, I'm thinking of John McTiernan and Die Hard, but like the idea that like, he's like, I just like this idea. You know, um, I, I'm just kind of dumbfounded by the success of it. You know, he just liked 
the idea. And he's, he, he considers this film like a kid that he's the parent to who grew up to be president. And he's like, yeah, it's my kid, but I didn't make them president. They just became president. So it's uh, it's really interesting. And, and I guess it goes into that camp of Shawshank where it's like it got played enough that it got put into our into our bloodstream, you know. <laughs> um, okay, Amy, uh, we are off of our special non-dice rolling films. Would we like to roll the die right now to see where we're going next? Azokahedron is coming out of the case to get a grand roll after two weeks off. All right, Paul, let's roll the Azokahedron and see what our last film is of the year. Ooh, I'm excited. Clanged against a thing, and it is 75. 75 is Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night. Ooh, this is interesting. I'm very excited about this. I've never seen it. I've never seen this. I don't know what all this is about. Ooh, actually, that might be a great um, call to action. Uh, What is your best guess about what In the Heat of the Night is about? We'll write down ours as well before we record the podcast. Uh, But you can give us a call at uh, 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 with your best guess of what In the Heat of the Night could be about. All right, we will see you next week for In the Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night. Thanks again to our friends over at Palm, the wireless device that lets you connect to your phone, but then just... Go off on your own and not have anybody tugging at your sleeve saying, hello, Palm is awesome. It's a great way to just be in the moment. Maybe that's going to be one of your New Year's resolutions. It is definitely one of mine to have all the things you want from your phone with you and nothing that's going to distract you from living your life. So get free, feel connected to the world by being maybe a little less connected to the world. Go to palm.com to learn more or go to your nearest Verizon store to check out everything that Palm offers and everything you don't want it to take along with you. It's the best. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.